Welcome along to the Midcast. We are live at the Baptist Assembly here at the Motherwell Concert Hall and we have a fabulous group of people who are excited about being here. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't have to tee them up to do that at all. That's awesome. Welcome to the Midcast, presented by the Mission Initiative Group of the Baptist Union of Scotland. Glenn Innes, uh, and I am going to be your host for the next 45 minutes or so, and I have some wonderful friends with me. I have uh, my friend Grant Hamilton, Scott Brennan, and Martin Clark, and we're going to get the chance to hear from them over the next 45 minutes on the subject of fearless innovation. That might be the first time they've heard that that was the topic, but there we go. Um, Guys, I wonder, we're just going to come along the line here and have you tell us a bit about your own circumstances and, and where you're from. So Martin, can I, can I start with you? You're based up in Aberdeen at Hillview Community Church. Can you tell me kind of what the last few years have been like, maybe the last seven years since you've been there, what's been going on? So to tell you that story, I need to go a wee bit further back just to give you the context. So I, Hillview Community Church was once International Baptist Church. Uh, it was planted in 1978 by Southern Baptist missionaries uh, at a time when the oil industry was kicking off in Aberdeen. And there is so much to be thankful for about many decades of God's faithfulness through the years of IBC. But, but long story short, really long story really short, is that, of course, over time, as a city changes, the demographic changes, the, the industry in Aberdeen changed, uh, the, the, the needs in terms of the spiritual needs changed as well. So the purpose for which IBC was originally planted had, had dissolved to an extent, at least, to the point where uh, around about the turn of the millennium, there was a real passion and hope in the church that they could refocus their vision to be a, a locally rooted church sharing the love of Jesus as best they could at that time. And that was challenging, you know, to, to, to navigate that change. And also, there were some other difficulties that arose in the church, as sadly can sometimes happen. All of that brought the church to what you might call something of a crisis point in 2010, where the numbers had dropped hugely, and there was a real question over the sustainability over the church. And the vision of the then pastor, Andy Hayes, uh, was in, in coordination with a few other leaders at the time there was, we need to give thanks for what God has done over these years, but we need to make a big change. We need to draw a line and pray that God might lead us into a fresh season. And the language that we used at that time was language of replant. I'm not precious about that language. I'm not 100% sure it's the, the right terminology for a few reasons, but that was what we landed on. So they asked me to come and help navigate some of that process the, the, to, to help think through that season for, for six months. And the long and the short of it was that in June of 2011, uh, we presented what we called a replant proposal to the church, which just covered a whole number of topics, name, leadership, membership structure, vision, values. All the exciting stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's big stuff. And uh, we asked the church to have one vote, a yes or no vote on whether they were up for that. And it was unanimous, I believe. And uh, in September 2011, International Baptist Church was replanted to Hillview Community Church. Hmm. And since then, you know, there was a necessary period of stabilization that happened in the church after that time, tumultuous time of challenge. Uh, there was a stabilization period. There were some, you know, staff changes that happened. There was the launch of some key ministries. And it's just been the story of gradual but exciting growth. And, and I think in God's kindness, uh, fruitfulness. Um, and one of the, the key markers along that story was that in January of 2017, depends where you mark it from, but in, I guess one significant point was January 2017, we planted Contour Community Church, uh, which is an area maybe 30 minutes drive from the church, and, uh, and we're still praying that God can help us as we navigate. I'm hoping to learn a bit from Scott about how we do a bit of church planting, because <laughs> that's still an ongoing work, and, yeah. and we're praying that God will help us with that, yeah. Brilliant. So if I can sum that up, a church that was in crisis, concerned that it might not survive, is now thriving with 
a couple of hundred people in it, and has planted another church in a town 10 miles away. Yeah, that's... It's good news. That's right. yeah, that sounds yeah, like innovation. <laughs> well done. Well, I don't know about that, but it's... Well, well done. It's, it's encouraging. Brilliant. Brilliant. I hope you're all encouraged hearing those stories, right? That's great. Um, Scott. Yeah. You're, you're not in the northeast of Scotland. You're in the east of Scotland. Um, tell us a bit of your story. I, I, I realize that's partly about Lighthouse, but it's sure. also a bit wider. So, um, my passion is, what does church look like for people who don't go to church? Yes. And I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Uh, my, my first experience of spirituality was actually a cult called the Way Ministry. Mm. So for three years I was in a cult. Um, and actually it was really good. <laughs> <laughs> it had small groups, it had fellowship, it had good teaching, the people cared for one another. Didn't believe that Jesus was God. <laughs> so there was a bit of a problem. And I started to study the Bible for myself and left to go to church. And when I went to church, I was like, this is church? And so from that point, which was probably 15 years ago, I began to ask questions, I studied theology, and then began to really push, how do you get people to connect with Jesus who don't go to church? So that's how it all began. Brilliant. And then uh, that's obviously led you to planting a church. So, can so you tell yeah, us a so about my, that? my first... Um, experience was in 2003 and that went horribly wrong um, and then we we planted again and it, that actually grew very rapidly I found myself really struggling with being pushed into a default pastor mode and so I've had to really think what does it mean to be a church planter and a leader and not default to mm. pastoring and um, five years ago I went on to the staff of Central Church in Edinburgh and became their church planting coach. So I've been involved in planting churches out of Central and then three years ago we basically replanted Lighthouse into a a church building and uh, decided that we weren't going to invite Christians, we were just going to uh, try and win the lost. What a radical idea that is. (laughs) Brilliant. Brilliant. Again, a totally different story, but so encouraging that this kind of innovation is going on around, around Scotland and around our family of churches. Grant, you have been in Dumbarton for the last two years, is that right? Yeah. Um, what are you doing? What's going on in Dumbarton? I'm kind of glad you asked me that question. <laughs> even, even though I'm the oldest one up here, I, I couldn't tell you what happened in the last hundred plus years of Dumbarton Baptist Church but I do know what happened just before I I was called there Uh, the the church had to make a a difficult decision to sell the building that they had been in for the best part of a hundred years they had just relocated to a community centre in a a housing estate with with a fair number of social problems and they they had a kind of vague sense that, that the Lord had brought them there for a reason, but everybody was trying to work out what that reason was. Um, I came along, I, I mean, it, I'm up here and you're saying that, you know, we're all fearless innovators, but I'm looking at people at the front here who belong to the church and they were the ones who, you know, they made that difficult decision. They, they did what they felt the Spirit was leading them to do. And I came along and just kind of crystallized the vision which at the time for me was a really clear sense of, of looking at Acts 15, you know, the Council of Jerusalem and the Bible where there's a big argument about should the church, do you have to become a Jew to become a Christian or can you become a Christian direct? Do we need to obey all the Jewish law? And James stands up in that meeting and says we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And that was my mantra. That was the, the word that God gave me when I arrived in Dumbarton. We should not make it difficult for the non-Christians, the people of Bellsmire and the estate that we're in to come to God. And that kind of means you have to deconstruct some of the things that you take for granted, some of the practices that you take for granted. You, you organize your, your meetings in a different way. We, we're obviously in a community center and not a traditional church building. If we want people to come from the local community, then we have to create an atmosphere that's inviting and comfortable. It doesn't mean we compromise the the gospel message, but it's just a 
trying to work out what things do we do that are really necessary and what things do we do that are traditional that we can actually get rid of that might be a barrier for people coming to faith. And I, I know you wanted short answers, and I'll try and be short. Sorry, we've got what, another 56 minutes. We've got loads what, of time. What we, what we basically did for about the first year I was there was pray. Uh, we shut down some of the existing meetings that we had. We had a nurture group for people coming out of uh, Alpha courses that had been running with the same people in the group for a number of years. We had a, a, a regular Bible study that wasn't particularly well attended. And even though it was painful for some people, what we did was we, we shut everything down. We set up three teams of prayer walkers to walk around the estate where we find ourselves at the same time every week. And we went out there doing what we were encouraged to do this morning, actually in the Bible study, which was see what God is already doing in the area. Mm-hmm. Who's he, where is he active? Who is he stirring up? Mm-hmm. What, what, how can we imitate Jesus who said, I only do what I see my father doing? We can only imitate that if we know what the father's doing in the first place. So mm-hmm. for a year, we just took ourselves out and explored the community. And the more we walked around it and prayed for it, the more we fell in love with it, the easier it was to build relationships, and, and we took it from there, and I'll stop. <laughs> no, I, I don't want you to. So, um, you talked about, so some of the things that, you, so you're, let me put it this way, your innovation so far that you've described has been about deconstruction, and that is innovative, right? Because yeah. it's easy to keep doing what, what we've always done, but actually to deconstruct that becomes itself very innovative but what have you now done you you talked about the prayer walking you talked about that first year what are some of the things that you're doing in in that area that are having impact um there's there's a number of things at the moment you might have heard uh, Kirsty yesterday talking about the the 1010 project you know with the message trust we apart from my two teenagers and and one other in the church you know we had a church uh, which is, was, is low on, on teenagers especially, like a lot of churches are. And we got involved in the, the bus project with the Message Trust, hoping that if this bus came to our area every Monday night, you know, for six weeks, that we, we would attract enough of the local young people that, and, and be able to just build relationships with them. With the plan being at the end of it that we would run a Youth Alpha and our youth alpha starts on Monday, and, and we've been really shocked because we haven't been getting huge numbers of young people on the bus. We've been getting in the 20s, where another local project's been getting 40 kids every week. But virtually everyone on that bus is going to do the youth alpha course starting That's next week. Brilliant. And we even have parents who were quite resistant, wanting the kids to do the alpha course. We have... To, I mean, an example is that the centre we're in has three staff. One of the staff has become a team member on our bus. One has asked me if she and her mum can get baptised in the <laughs> next few weeks. And the other one who was particularly hostile towards the church is sending her daughters along to the, the bus project and, and given permission for the whole girls club that she runs to do the Youth Alpha. Wow. Um, so that's, that's one thing. The... the other thing we started, it was someone else in the congregation had a real heart for people with learning disabilities. And it was, it was evident as I met with other local leaders that we had virtually no one in any of the local churches with a learning disability, which you have to think must be, there has to be something wrong if about 10% of the population in theory has a learning disability. Why are none of them in the church? So we got involved with an organization called Prospects, who promote church for people with learning disabilities. They produce resources for people with learning disabilities. And uh, we set up our own prospects group and kind of marketed it as a church for people with learning disabilities. But uh, instead of meeting in the community center where we are, we, we took that church to the local daycare center where people with disabilities go. So it's familiar ground for them. We're not asking them to go somewhere strange. The carers are used to going there. And, and we're getting a wonderful opportunity to, to minister to people with disabilities and the carers and the families. And it wouldn't surprise me if that ultimately ended up bigger than what we do on a Sunday. 
Because that's still church. Do you want some more? You play at the church. Yeah, you keep going. Come on. (laughs) Because you've only been there two years, right? Yeah. I I got tangled up as well with Ben Francis from from Big Life, who you might remember came here a a few years ago and got funding for a boat uh, because he was planting so many churches in, in rural villages in India. I had a chat with him one weekend and he said to me, I'm in London, I'll come up to Dumbarton. <laughs> and he just flew up, preached for an hour and three quarters, <laughs> and uh, invited me to, to go to the Czech Republic and meet with other people who were exploring the, this new, this, this kind of Bible study that he was promoting called a, a three-thirds study, which is an evangelistic Bible study rather than the regular one. The idea being that you... You divide the time into three, you look back for a third of it, looking back at how you have put what you studied last time into practice, what opportunities you had to to reach people, teach people what you learned. You have a third looking up and studying the scriptures, and a third looking forward, where you have to kind of make yourself quite accountable to say, well, we've just studied this passage, and it spoke to me in this way, and I, in the next week, I'm going to put it into practice by doing X and Y. And you're kind of obliged to go out and actually obey what, what you're studying. I guess uh, in the Baptist world especially, we put a high priority on the Word and on knowledge and learning. And uh, in, these, in big life, because they, they're traveling around India initially and they don't have time to train pastors and church leaders... Uh, they, there's a different kind of emphasis. They, they talk about three legs of a stool, and there's, a, if I just remember them, one of them is knowledge. Uh, there's, there's teaching, obedience, and sharing, that's it. Three legs of a stool, teach, obey, and share. And it's kind of based on the Great Commission, you know, go, baptize, and teach everything that, that I've commanded you. And the idea is that you if you want to be a disciple who makes disciples, it's not enough just to know a lot of stuff and, uh, and to have a good knowledge of the Bible. And, you know, we all respect people who can talk at length and quote scripture and stuff like that, but the, the other element to this is, are you actually doing what you're talking about? Are you putting that knowledge into practice? Are you obeying it? Are you sharing it with other people? Are you teaching it in your daily life? Does your life demonstrate what you know? I'm going to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always thinking, want to give you a round of applause after all that crap. I'm awesome. thinking I'm going to dry up here. <laughs> it's so exciting to hear all that. Um, it's so exciting. How, how has that Ben Francis stuff, we'll, just, we'll finish with this, how has that Ben Francis stuff worked out? Um, well, we haven't, we're not needing a boat yet. <laughs> Up and down you know, the climb. Climb. I, can't, <laughs> I can't say I've planted 24,000 churches. Um, and I think there is a reticence amongst, I, I wouldn't say all Westerners, but a, I can speak for our own church people. They're lovely, faithful believers in Christ, but they're just not in the habit of sharing the faith regularly or even talking your faith in everyday life and everyday situations. Um, and it's something we've had to learn. But what it, what it has done is, is it, it's given us three really lively Bible studies. It's probably um, improved. It's definitely given us a go mentality in the church. It's, it's changed the culture of the church. Mm. Everybody's actively looking for opportunities. Even if they get scared and don't take them, <laughs> they are looking. And uh, one brilliant thing that happened was that uh, someone contacted me through Facebook with a, a difficult question about the Holy Spirit. And uh, what we might be tempted to do in those circumstances normally is say, well, come along to a service and meet me. But because I'd done the big life training, which is all about going where people are, I phoned the person and I took my wife to visit her family. We went along. Uh, the, the long story short is that um, she has since been baptized. Oh. She is part of the church with her three children. And I now do a Bible study every two weeks for her family members in her home. They, they don't 
you know, in the habit of attending church, but I meet with father and father-in-law and mother-in-law and sisters, and we study the Bible, and I can see them all on the road to becoming disciples who make disciples. The difficulty for us in the church, like in our, in our buildings, is like, you get asked the question, what, well, what do we do if they don't come to church? Well, we just kind of rejoice that they're following Christ, <laughs> and that hopefully they're going to start sharing what they know with other people as well. And, mm. you know, it's that point where you lose control over it all, but... You know, it's encouraging Good. at the Imagine same time. That. Good. Losing control would be a terrible thing. <laughs> it's, uh, no, Grant, it's absolutely inspiring to hear all those stories. Scott, you are involved. You obviously have, you wear a number of hats. One of them is having a bit of a wider view. You know, yeah. you, you, you've heard what Martin's done in Aberdeen. You've heard some of what Grant's done there. Can you tie that together with some other strands that are happening? Sure. Um, one of the hats I wear is I'm a coach for church planters and I'm on the leadership team of something called The Forge which is a pioneer training school and one of the biggest challenges that we find is that Christians have not made the paradigm shift from starting with church they start with church and they think well people should come on a Sunday morning and that would be proper church what we're discovering is that when you go to someone's house and when you do a Bible study and when their friends come round, that is church. Mm. And you reproduce church all over the place. And so you're, you're having a, a paradigm shift away from what they would call a Christendom mindset mm-hmm. to a sort of post-Christian. So Ben Francis in India or wherever, he's not in a Christian, Christendom. He, he's pre-Christian. Yeah. So he's not, he's not constrained by all these kind of methodologies that we have about church so the nice thing for me about not having a christian upbringing is that i don't feel obliged to do things a certain way and i have the freedom to do that. and so a good example of that is i i the church of scotland asked me to do a consultancy for them uh, in a, a a mining community in in midlothian and there was like 20 very old people in, the, in a massive building and i said well we're does everybody meet? And they said, well, in the local care home. So there's like 100 people having lunch in the local care home, a, bit, a similar situation to your own. So I said, well, why don't we go there? And now every week there is a church in the care home that basically looks like church. They sing songs, they, they have a leader, they have Bible study, and they, they look after each other. So that is church. So the Church of Scotland on a Sunday morning has, well, it grew by 10 people, which was revival. <laughs> And it grew to 30, but the actual other church meeting is a fresh expression of church, which has 60 people. So I think we just need to be open to, let's try all kinds of shapes and sizes and break down some of our ecclesiology. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, I'm going to poke on that a minute. Um, <laughs> is that okay if I poke on that? Yeah. I'm going to do it anyway. I was just being polite. Um, uh, I guess, what's the minimum that makes something a church? Well, that's a really good question because I suspect that the model that Ben Francis uses is probably like 10 people. Oh, sorry. Let me rephrase that then. What are the minimum requirements for something to be a church? I, I, I don't care how many people are there. More. Well, I, I think a... we get back to Acts 2. Okay. I think Acts 2 is our, our framework that if there's, you know, people coming to faith, if it's apostolic teaching, if there's worship, if there's generosity and sharing with one another, it doesn't have to be in a building that looks like a church, it could be a house. To be honest with you, I've studied a lot of missional movements over the last years. I went to South America to study the G12 movement. Um, Their church grew to 300,000 people over a 15-year period, and they all met in homes. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So some of that's going to require us, if we're going to be fearless innovators, actually to deconstruct some of our looking backwards. And actually, in all your stories, that's been something that you've said. So Martin, I, I be, you had to look backwards to IBC and actually be willing to let go of being a church for American people in Aberdeen before it could ever become what it is, what it is today. Um, what... 
in the things that you were doing there, Martin, because you obviously did a lot of stuff to make, to go from this struggling place to this thriving church with a church plant, what, what one thing made the difference? I think we have sought to continually provoke us as a church family to not stay in a place of comfort. So, one of the, so the flip side of this coin is that one of the biggest challenges has been to, to understand and have a, uh, a helpful definition of what fruitfulness is as we go from month mm. to month, year to year. Because one of the challenges was that we, we, we realized that a few years in that we had effectively understood success, quote unquote, as a thriving church. Oh, there's good coffee, there's, there's parking, there's kids ministry, you know, there's all these things, there's, there's programs running, there's outreach programs. And, and uh, there was a sense in which I think the danger was that we settled in that, oh, great, tick, we've done what we sought out to do. So to, to try and push against that, because of course that's not fruitfulness, that's not the be all and end all at all, we have sought to continually try and provoke and nudge and, and be uh, open to taking risks and how we do things. So one of the ways that I would uh, po- point to that is the vision statement that we have for a church, um, there are eight statements that we have there. Seven out of eight of them could be owned, I suspect, by pretty much any church around Scotland. But one of them has, has aided us in that aim of continually provoking risk and pushing us out of our comfort zone, which is um, we, we, we see, and the, the vision that we have is that we see a church that plants churches. And that is continually, the, the dream is, the prayer is, continually multiplying uh, in discipleship and then in church planting. Mm-hmm. And that has helped us... Uh, stop growing comfortable because we're always thinking right when is you know where is the lord leading us for church plant number one? Oh, okay it seems to be contour let's focus in on that let's pray about that who's going oh i don't want to go uh, you know i'm nervous about it we don't have enough people we're you know a small church how are we going to do it and and, and oh, no, god's leading us this way so let's go and then you know now that contour is established we're we're in a vulnerable place again because we sent away a bunch of our best people. Numbers drop. So it's, it's continually trying to stay dependent on the spirit and to push ourselves out of our comfort zone. That is one thing that has helped us along the path, I think. Brilliant. Yeah, that's great. Um, I think, so just to get your, uh, I'm speaking out to you guys now. This is the interactive part of our time. Um, we're about halfway through our time, so I think what I'm going to do, I'm going to wind something up here with these guys, and then we'll have a, an opportunity for Q&A, we'll see how that goes, and then we'll come back to some more conversations. So just get your minds thinking, we'll have uh, a question in just a moment. Here's the opportunity for you guys, is there anything any of the others has said that you want to either respond to or ask a question about? I would say that... Um one of the keys is we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> and you have to get to that point where you don't have a product, a methodology, a plan. You, you, you just get to the point where you say, do you know what, God? I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what it's going to take to reach these people. I'm just going to experiment and try things. And if I fall flat on my face, that's okay. Yeah. Brilliant. Grant? No, I was just listening to him and thinking... Uh, Maybe you should come and pastor me. <laughs> <laughs> I could listen to you all day. <laughs> no, I, I, was, I was really blessed and challenged by what Grant shared. And, you know, you said you took a year deconstructing and just praying. Is that right? Uh, I guess I feel, uh, I don't know why. It's probably partly personality, partly maybe the church culture thing still. But I feel a drive always to be doing the churchy stuff, for want of a better way to put it. And uh, I, I'm, I'm really, I just think it's a beautiful thing to say, do you know what, let's just pray, let's just deconstruct where we're at and take some time and seek what God's doing. And uh, I think that's very precious. Yeah. I, think, I think we had an unusual set of circumstances. Mm. You know, I, th- I accept it would have been more difficult to do that had we been a bigger congregation who were, who were more entrenched in the place you know that we had been before. It was, it was, it was like a new, a new horizon for everybody. Everything was new, so it, it was a good time, you know, to just to take time and, and think about where we were at and where we needed to go. Right. And it, it's 
as I've listened here, and I obviously know all of you a little bit more than we've just talked about, I also know that that, that point is really critical, that actually where God opens a door that in your circumstances were, were, were that you just moved building and into a new area and all those things, actually, if you don't take advantage of that, those windows aren't massive, and it does take some quite courageous or in a context of an assembly, fearless leadership to actually step into that and to bring other people with you. Yeah, I, I would say that's very, very key. That, that One of the things I do is I, I run learning communities for churches transitioning. And there's two things you always need. You always need an innovator, and you also need someone to translate what the innovator is saying. <laughs> because the innovator is too far ahead. That's so helpful. They're too far ahead. And so most of the congregation are like, I don't know what he means or she means, and that's too scary. But if you have someone who's an early adopter who says, yeah, I get what you're saying, but I'm going to make sense of that to everybody else, then normally that makes sense. <laughs> that's gold. That, that's great. Exactly. That's really practical, you can have helpful that for free. stuff. Brilliant, thank you. Have you got like a bank of those people? Because <laughs> <laughs> I could do with a few of those. Every, every, ch- every church has them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they just yeah, have yeah, to be yeah. found. Okay. That's good. Yeah, that's that's right. really good. That's true. Excellent. Right. Let's have some conversation here. Um, who has any questions? Uh, we got... Oh, well, this is going to get exciting. I hope you boys are ready for this. Um, right, so if you can put, pop your hand up. We've got a microphone. Please don't speak without the microphone because we can't record it. Uh, there we go. If you keep your convers- them short as well, that would really help us. I'm in, I'm in a situation where 80% of my church are within a few years of 80. And I love the sound of what you're talking about, but I really want to honour the church as they know it while they're alive. Yeah. 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 I, 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 yeah, basically what would you speak into that situation? Yeah, that's great. Um, So I'll I'll have you guys, I I, I have a quote that I heard, I sat with a guy called Peter Nielsen who used to work for the Church of Scotland. He's retired now. Uh, He wrote Church Without Walls. Yeah, he wrote Church Without Walls. A, a genuine innovator mm. in, the, in the Church of Scotland. Yeah. And um, I sat with him about a decade ago, and uh, he, he, I, I asked him something similar, saying, how, how do we make this work with established church? And, thing, and, and he said, look, for some older people, it would be pastoral cruelty to expect them to change. They That's have right. faithfully followed Jesus for a long time. But that must not mean we don't do change. We need to run two tracks and he said his experience was if you ask these people to support people doing new things, they will happily do that. Yeah. We just have to create a space that's for right. them. So that, that's some wisdom from anyone else. Any of you three want to respond to the question? Hi, Peter. Um, Two-track is the way forward. So the, the Church of England started the Fresh Expressions 12 years ago, and at the 10-year mark, they have a two-track approach. So they... they honor the legacy of the former congregation. They don't criticize it. They don't say you're doing it wrong. They honor the legacy. But what they do is they they come out of one track and create a second track and they call it a fresh expression. Um, They've been doing that for 10 years now and the last survey showed that 90,000 people were added to the Church of England through fresh expressions and the original track saw what was going on and absolutely supported it. Right. Either the other two want to say them to that. We have lots of questions, so if, if I mean, if it's good, let's No, I, well, apart from to say that part of the challenge of, of pastoral ministry and part of the, the beauty of what we're called to is to navigate change among a broad range of people and to help as best we can gather in. Some will, some will not ever be gathered in. They'll, they'll be ready to move on to something else. Uh, and to hold together and to try and listen to one another well and to move forward. And I think that's, there's a lot of tears in, in that and struggle, but there's also something really precious about that as well. And the, uh, I find for me as well, there is a, there's a big pastoral role in there in, in doing a lot of donkey work and on the side. <laughs> You know, and reassuring people and visiting people and, and, and trying to get across the message, I'd say that 
until you stop drawing breath, God still has a purpose for Absolutely. you. You know, is there somewhere you can be involved in this, even if it just means praying for this? Can I give one um, example very quickly? Of yeah, course you sure. can. So um, we, we bought over a church building and we created a community hub. And on a Monday, we call it Wellbeing Monday. Wellbeing Monday has an indoor curling group for retired people it has a dementia cafe and it has a men in sheds project. Now, Lighthouse has traditionally been young people. Now, I'm, I'm probably one of the oldest there. Um, but now, the curling group has 12 people coming every Monday morning. And the lady that leads that is one of our congregation, an older lady. That's now her missional community. And four people from that curling group who hadn't been to church for 20 years have now started coming to Lighthouse on a Sunday morning. So what we, what we say is if you create a space where people can belong before they believe, then they make that step. So I think there's actually a massive harvest field amongst the older generations. Yeah, yeah. great. Thank you, Peter. That was a great question. We have a question in here. That, if you could shout out your name and where you're from, that might also be interesting to us. I'm Ruth from St. Mary's Community Church in Dundee. Uh, I quite agree we need to get out of our comfort zones, but sometimes we can run, run the risk of making the place uncomfortable, whereas the people who we're trying to reach are looking for comfort. And very often the people in the community, the ones who come in, find that this is a place I can feel at home. How can we balance getting out of our comfort zones without disturbing the comfort that people can find in our communities. Can you summarise that, please? Yeah. So, so the essentially, if if we're saying one of the things about being fearless innovators is for us to push people out of the comfort zones, that as Christians we need to do new things, do different things. How do we make sure that there's still a place of welcome and comfort for those who? are coming from the outside. Is that a fair summation of your question? They, yeah. you got so I, I, I don't know if I have an answer to that, but I do have some thoughts on it because the first few years of, of Hillview, um, to be honest, we saw almost no new people coming to faith. Uh, there weren't many baptisms and things like that. But one of the things that God did do in Hillview was to gather uh, in our church people who had been really hurt, really burned from lots of other church experiences and were deeply grieving and struggling in life. And, and here I am preaching about when are we going to do our first church plant? And, you know, looking out on a church is just struggling so much. And I, I, I don't know what the answer is apart from to say that that's something about what discipleship with Jesus is like. You know, it seems that there, you have to find a way to walk the path following after, what, following after what Jesus has called us to and to do that with limps and with tears and with heartache. Uh, I, so I, I guess I, I'm a bit wary of saying, should we either do the pastoral thing and I'm not suggesting that's what you're saying, Ruth, but either do the pastoral thing or the pioneer thing. But again, in the mystery and the beauty of the complexity of family life in the church of Jesus Christ, somehow can we not walk this path together? And I guess that's where I'm challenged by a lot of what Scott's saying, because it's, you know, it's saying we don't need to make this complicated. It doesn't need to have a, a, a huge fancy building. It doesn't need to have 15 leaders for it to work. Um, so I'm, I'm needing to learn a bit more about all that. I would say that I'm a big fan of fivefold ministry in Ephesians 4.11. Yep. So you have the, it, it says, in Ephesians 4 it says it's about unity, diversity, and that creates maturity. It says there are five expressions of Christ, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. If you want to fully express Jesus, you have all five. What tends to happen is the apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists are the innovators and they get bored with church life and they go out and do something new. <laughs> they create things where the shepherding is terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The teaching is probably poor. If we can, within our churches, right. express all five, then we can do innovation and pastoral care at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can I just add as well? It's, it's not answering the question, but it's probably worth saying that, that I don't think there's ever a time when I feel in my comfort zone. Very yeah, often. Right. <laughs> you know, right. I, d I don't, I wouldn't ask people to do things that I'm, I'm not 
prepared to do myself. And, and sometimes, even though it, you get a clear sense that the Holy Spirit is leading you in a particular direction, you, you still wake up every day and it's almost on the wing in a prayer. Totally. <laughs> you don't know how it's going to work out. And so sometimes I say to people, you know, you, you probably think I enjoy this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> changing stuff, you know. They're bringing these new ideas, but, but actually they're, they're new for all of us. And we, but the best way to, to survive and to thrive is, is to be in it together. And if I had answered the question on, you know, earlier on about one of the, the, the key things that, you know, out of the last couple of years, for me it would be unity in the church. And, and even where people don't absolutely agree with everything you're doing, if they're not stabbing you in the back and they're not... Um, disaffected by it. And, I'm pretty low bar. Sorry, part of my church will but, um, What I mean yeah, is yeah. If, you, if you're able to broadly hold everyone yes. together and maintain that, that sense of unity, that, that we're all in this common mission together, we're, we're aiming for common goals, even though we don't yeah. all necessarily understand how we're going there or where we're going to arrive, that, that really does help. That, that, that's a really profound point, I think, that that actually the commonly held mission will hold together all sorts of other bits. And it sounds to me, Martin, when you said you, the one thing you got right was creating that, you know, we see a church that plants churches. That was the commonly held vision that holds everybody to, to that. that. That feels to me like a really practical, simple thing. If we want to be innovators, we need to create and state that um, that that's commonly held mission or, yeah. or, or, or vision. Yeah. So uh, that's great. D- did we answer your question? <laughs> it's a risky. Yeah, good. Okay. Could be a problem. Yeah. Okay. That's I, I think it is a problem. Okay. I think what happens is that the innovators can't be patient enough to wait for the church to change, so they go and do something else. And you're taking away the innovation that the church needs. And so I think we need to put both together. That's the best way forward. That's great. Great. Uh, who, who, oh, so we've got, a, we've got a man in a yellow T-shirt. He seems to deserve to ask a question because he's been working hard. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. Uh, hi, I'm Marcus uh, from Lark Hall Baptist Church. Um, you've perhaps touched on, on the answers to the, this question, but listening to what you were saying, um, are you um, advocating uh, a safe place in a traditional church uh, building or should we maybe move away from this framework and meet in community halls and homes to be more effective in evangelism? That's a great question. Um, and we have a brilliant panel of people for this because, if I get this right, so Martin, Martin has the church on a hill, big muckle thing at the top of a hill, which is great, and your church plant meets in the community hall. Scott has bought a building that was an old Church of Scotland building to meet in. Episcopal. An Episcopal building, sorry, I apologise. <laughs> an important distinction, yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and Grant, yours, you, you, as you said, you've moved in the community centre. So who, who wants to take that? Because that, that's, that's a good question. Um, I, I started off as a, a church planting purist. <laughs> and as I've got older, I've become more pragmatic. <laughs> and I, I began by thinking that the gospel needs to be heard. And the only way that would happen would be through getting out of our church buildings and meeting in homes and multiplying across the nation. That's what I used to believe. I still kind of believe it, but... What I discovered is that there's enough of a memory within the population that church should look like a church building. We grew faster when we bought a church. We, more non-Christians came to what we did when we bought a church building because that's what they expected. The problem is what do we do with our buildings? And if we can have a missional framework for our buildings, then let's stay in them. So, and it, it might be worth saying that your, your church building, I've, I've visited you there, your church building doesn't look like a church building. From the outside, it's a classic Scottish, you know, stone-built church. And then you go inside, and at that point, pretty much is the end of anything classic. Yeah. So could you describe maybe what it... So uh, one morning I asked myself, 
if only 98%, if 98% of people in Scotland are not followers of Jesus, which is what the stats seem to suggest, where does everybody go on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock? The answer is they go to sports events, B&Q and coffee shops. Or they're in their bed. And so I went, I did a tour of coffee shops on a Sunday morning at 11 o'clock to Costa and Starbucks and, and various places. I also found out that the reason they were in their beds is because the night before they were at music events, they were arts performances, and so they had a long lie. So what I decided to do was to, to try and be culturally relevant but biblically faithful. I would still meet on a Sunday morning in a church building but create a space that looks like an arts and music venue in a cafe style. And so it's open most of the week. And so when people come in, they're very familiar with it. They come to music gigs there. They come to performances. They have coffee there. And they know that a congregation meets there on a Sunday. So when they go, it's very, very familiar to them. So I, I think that's, I don't know if that answers the question. No, I thought he was going to say they had rows of beds in the. We actually have about seven really nice leather sofas. <laughs> uh, Grant, you, you, you've, you've talked about being in the community centre already, but also about going to another space because it was a safe space for them. I'm maybe a bit of a maverick because um, my background, some of you will know, is with BMS World Mission. And I worked in North Africa where we had no churches. So it, I came back here and, and in my first pastorate, I struggled a bit to get used to how attached people were to their building and, and who was allowed to use it. And it, So I'm kind of relieved on one hand that we don't own a building now, yeah. which isn't any consolation to those of you who do. <laughs> but, but then if you did... You know, you wouldn't call me as your pastor anyway, yeah. so that's, o- that's okay. I'm in exactly the right place I need to be. Um, but do you think it's missionally helpful not owning your own building? I kind of walk in, be- I-, I can see the value of both. I mean, what Scott's describing sounds great, and I've seen pictures of it, and it looks great. Um, in respect to the, the Centre for... Um, people with disabilities, definitely that works better than, than where we are. But because people, we had no population to go to. We started from nothing. Yeah. So it was much easier to start somewhere where people were already attending and familiar with. Um, that wouldn't necessarily work for, for everything. Um, so I can see the value of having a building, but at the same time, I'm relieved I don't have one. And it probably doesn't suit my style to some extent. So would it be fair to say then that actually owning or not owning a building is not really the issue? It's what you do with what you've got and what you've got access to that is critical. Yeah, but I think one of the things I have to do and and the other leaders in the church have to do as well is, is... is let everyone else who attends on a Sunday and, and understands church to be that Sunday meeting, that actually we have a congregation in a day centre, we have a congregation in a local elderly people's home, yeah. we have a congregation in people's houses. Right. You, you might not see them every Sunday, but the, the church is a lot, lot bigger than what you're looking at on a Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. And, and it's you guys who've helped us to... Yeah. to do all this under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Brilliant. It's not what traditionally you, yeah. you, you would understand church to be, but it's actually much, much bigger than, than, than what we imagine it is. Great. Maybe but, just slightly following on from what Scott said as well, I'd just like to wave a wee flag for some of the things that lots of very normal churches have been doing for for decades and hundreds of years and and just to say that you know the fruit that we have seen of people coming to faith more often than not has happened um, because Jesus has been presented as beautiful and precious in sung worship and in teaching and in family connections in the church family uh, just as has happened 
for so many, many, many years. So, you know, in some ways I feel like a bit of a fraud because I don't feel very, I don't feel that Hillview is very innovative, innovatory, I was going to say. Innovative is the word I'm looking for. Only innovators come up with new words. For <laughs> <laughs> I am not innovative. Yeah, anyway. So, yeah, in some ways there's just something so powerful about just Jesus being known for who he is. And that can happen in a very normal kind of church service as well. Can I add something as well? One of the big things that we're involved in at the moment is we're planning something which has become really topical in the last couple of days called Awake Dumbarton, which is two years of prayer and fasting, which is going to involve every denomination in Dumbarton. Uh, some of them who feel like they're trapped in, in old buildings with small congregations. Some of them who are, who are, who are doing quite innovative things. But um, the plan is that for, for two years we will set up ecumenical prayer gatherings at, at regular times of the week. And we'll get together for big praise events. We will agree to fast and miss a meal every week at the same time. And pray for each other, pray for the, the churches and the, the town. We booked a local um, theatre, which has got a lot more seats in it than people who actually attend the churches on a Sunday. <laughs> but the, the church is in a pretty dire straits in Dumbarton. It, it's not good across the board. You know, some of, the, some of them have only five or six people going along it. And it. But the plan is we're going to meet together, we're going to pray together, we're going to expect God to do great things. And I... I kind of think, especially based on what everybody's been talking about the last couple of days, that, that it doesn't so much matter what resources we have or, or where we meet. If, if we truly prayerfully seek God's will and his blessing and, and truly expect you know, streams of, of living water to, to flow and, 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 and ask for that to happen consistently, regularly, frequently together... And make that the, the cry of our hearts. And I think all the other difficulties we have with small congregations, aging populations, buildings that have fallen to bits, we, we, we will see them overcome in our area in the next couple of years as the church really grows. I truly believe that. Amen. Amen. It's exciting. Very it's exciting. exciting. <laughs> Right, more questions. We had hands. There's one here, and then I see you, Harry. I'm not ignoring you, I promise. We've got one over here. Uh, We'll go here, and then we've got a chap over here too. Brilliant. Uh, Stephen from Allness Baptist Church. Uh, We're probably in a slightly different situation from the three on the panel because we're in the Scottish Highlands, so very much a rural outreach area, and our church is at the challenge and development stage. Yeah. So my question really comes along to with an outreach situation where you may end up with a number of home groups. Do you try and control what is happening in those groups? And are, do those people see themselves as part of a church which could be 30 or 50 miles away from them? Or how do you manage those kind of situations? Or you just end up with lots of different groups being very loosely associated with a Baptist church? Yeah, yeah. So, so um, over the years, Forge, which is the pioneer training school, has helped a number of rural situations, normally Church of Scotland. Um, so, there's two things I would say. One is, is doing house churches is the only way you're going to reach a wide area rurally. But the question I think you're asking is, how do you do quality control? And how do you do discipleship? And I think the simple answer is you huddle the leaders. You, you train the leaders, and this is what they do in missional movements in the third world, developing world, is you, you take, so you become responsible to lead the leaders, and therefore that way you know that the DNA of what you're trying to do is being reproduced. And because they're being discipled by you, you've got an ongoing relationship. So that, that's the first thing. The second thing is I, I coached uh, a retired couple that were elders in Tevalich in Argyle. Three linked charges, all of them dead, completely dead. The minister burned out and they came in the forge course. And they just got fired up around mission and discipleship. 
I, and I, so I give them ongoing coaching. It's quite nice because they've got a cottage that they let me stay in for a week. <laughs> um, they have seen 12 people come to faith this year. And what they did is that they did a community survey and found there was nowhere that gathered people from a wider area. So they took over an old hall and just created, honestly, it's a cheesy, naff hall with like bad coffee and scones. Like it's nothing fancy. I, I was like, wow. And people from all over come to this because it created community. Mm. And then they ran, they've never run three alpha courses out of this and they call it Connect. And that's, that's in a, a rural community where the church was on its last legs. So the, there are stories of turnaround. Yeah. But that couple get huddled. So they, they know, you know how to keep going. Uh, you've used the word huddle. That's probably not familiar okay, to everybody. Just, what, what do you so mean So basically a huddle is a small group for leaders where they get discipled by someone else. Great. That's you Just like Jesus did it, you know? Yeah, that's it. That's you innovatory people coming up with new words. So, um, I'd also want to add that in our own Baptist family, we have uh, Geary Church and Andrew's sitting over there. So he said, do you, I don't know if you know, do you know Andrew Clark? Right, meet Andrew. Uh, speak to him afterwards, but they've been doing Geary Church, which is in a rural setting just outside Aberdeen across a valley called the Geary Valley. And if you can spell it, you get bonus points. Um, <laughs> but uh, they... Uh, and uh, across some of the towns that are fairly spread out through there, and they've been working with this for a number of years. So let me encourage you to speak to Andrew afterwards too. I'm sure he has some helpful pointers there. We had a gentleman here and Harry over here. Uh, so uh, people are pointing at one another. Did... Oh, that's all right. We'll get... Right. Okay. Who, uh, any, who, who, who still wants to ask a question? We've got one, uh, we've got Sandy and Harry, so we'll... Did... Well. <laughs> um, David McFarland. Great. On mission field in Italy for 25 years. I pastor in churches 15 years before we went on mission. I, maybe I've got the wrong, wrong end of the stick here, but I've been getting the idea, listening to people speaking and listening to the panel, I just want the panel to maybe share uh, something to clarify it for myself. I've been getting the idea that we've got innovators in these churches and they're making all these changes and we've got groups of elderly people who don't want to change and don't want... In my experience, going around the churches in England, Scotland, Wales and Italy, the hub and the innovators and the enthusiastic people are the elderly. In my very first Baptist church in Castlebrook, I had a group of five elderly women, all pensioners. I called them my golden oldies because they were brilliant. I just wanted to ask the panel on their, their situations, and it was good to hear that comment there about this couple, retired couple, being fired up. Yep. As, as you got a lot of old people in your churches, active it's not just a young people. Yep. I, 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 I would want to say that I think the answers to the question we've been trying to give are very much that this isn't just one part of the church working with another part there, but actually trying to find a way that we all work together in this. But the specific question was, do you have all the folks in your church and how are they engaging with this kind of thing? Grant? Yeah, I mean, we, we still have a, a good proportion of older people in the church. I mean, the, the irony of being asked to, to come and talk about these things is that we, we're at the beginning of a journey, you know, and we, we're still a small church, um, but we seem to be becoming a catalyst to get things going uh, in our community and to get other churches inspired. Um, but we couldn't do that without the backing of everyone in the congregation and, and this faithful people there who've been through umpteen changes over the decades that are, that are still with us and, and they're out walking the streets and, and praying in prayer walking right. teams and, and even when they can't physically engage in, in everything they, they're, they're always there offering support and right. prayers so that when I talk about unity being really important I'm talking about everybody it's not that there isn't a space for, for one particular 
group of people, Great. not at all. Martin, do you have something you wanted to add there? Just yeah, just I think it comes back to the five-fold ministry thing. If you have good pastors, they care about all the people, including older people. And uh, my, my, my own story with that was when, when, when I was asked to in, think through the replant stuff, I came in with a particular idea of what that might look like. Let's close the doors. Let's take two months. Let's form a new core team. But there were two elders there who really pastored well the people and they said we can't just do all that you can't just sweep away everything that exists because we love we are shepherding this family so no we're not going to do that so then you think okay well how can we address the need that we have to move forward but do it in a way that honors and loves the old people who are praying and giving and involved in so many ways so i just affirm what you say just very quickly my best evangelist at the moment is a lady in her 70s The reason she's my best evangelist is she has dementia and she's lost a lot of her boundaries and she just speaks to everybody about Jesus. Wow. Mm. Wow. <laughs> there we go. Brilliant. There were, I think we, uh, we, 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 so Harry's had his hand up since the beginning. We are running short on time. So if we can have a short question, a couple of short answers, uh, maybe, and then we'll see where we can go from there. So Sandy, you had your hand up. Was there anyone else other than Sandy? Right, Harry. Yes, Harry, the heretic based in Leith. Um, well, the very quick question is um, in terms of both Preston Pants and King Tor, I'd like to know how many people you had with you at the start to launch. My longer question, which, which nobody's raised, but I think is an important one, is, is how many people, what do you think the minimum number is in order to launch a, a public meeting? Uh, because my experience in terms of three small churches is actually, I think they've been probably too small to grow successfully because there's an embarrassment factor coming in that if, if a Christian's left to come and join you they may join but somebody coming in from the world to a group that's okay. in single figures feels too exposed okay. that's and helpful yeah, that, so uh, I really would like to, to, to raise the question of what, what numbers do you think you need okay. as a team in order to launch okay. a new work that's great so can you tell us how many you have and then I want to respond to Harry if that's okay so how many did you plan contour with so i'm looking at my fellow pastor here to get confirmation of this 30 or so down about 20 harry that's how many we had six and you planted a particularly just a fairly traditional yeah, church yeah, yeah. with that yeah we had six people and i don't think you should start with a public launch yes so that's what i was going to say so <laughs> I, we blew that. I, I, I i haven't had time to tell you my story i i in the context of this, I'll call myself a failed church planter. You can ask me about that later. Um, but we, we never got very big. But the one people it wasn't a barrier to were non-Christians. But we didn't look like a regular church service. That was the, the thing. We, we met around a table, created a different kind of space that allowed it. If you tried to do a regular church service with people leading worship at the front and, and uh, somebody preaching and yeah. the whole bit with six people... That is a train wreck for like all Hillsongs. concerned. <laughs> what was that? Sorry, it's not going to look like Hillsongs. No, <laughs> it will not. Uh, Sandy, if we can take your question, that would be super. Uh, Thanks, man. Um, a very unfair question, very challenged this morning by the BMS about the first missionaries who dug their own graves. The question is, have you dug your graves in the area God's got you in? Um, I, I would say that, and I'll use a, a, a fancy technical term, unless we do incarnational mission, it's not going to work. Yeah. And what I mean by that, you've got to live there, be with the people, know who your neighbors are, your face has to be known. And so I, I, so we, I, you know, I made a decision, I'm going to move. And right, people assume that I lived in the posh houses, Preston Pans is a working class area, but I moved into the miners area. I think that's really needed. I don't really know what you mean. Do you mean, am I going to stay in the same place for the rest of my days? That's how the first missionaries, yeah. It's how they first made an impact. We now can do, BMS can do temporary missionary work because somewhere in the plan of God, some people gave their lives to a particular work. And the question is, can innovators do that? What I can say is when, when I went away with BMS, I had to sign a form 
uh, specifying what would be done with my body in the event of my death in North Africa. No, no one's asked me to do that in Dumbarton yet. But, um, Is it not just part of the job description in Dumbarton? <laughs> but I have absolutely zero intention of thinking about going anywhere else. Yeah, but that... You know, no one can predict the future, but I hope to dig my grave in Dumbarton. And, and, and Scott's patience point earlier is massively key. And we, we recently had something of a, a, a difficult church meeting, not a disaster in any way, but, you know, and it leaves you feeling a wee bit annoyed and a wee bit anxious and a wee bit, where's this going to go? And, and I guess, I, I don't know about digging graves, but you guess you hope that you are day by day trying to submit yourself to what Jesus wants for you and following his lead. That's, that's all I'm trying to do. So if I can reflect what I've heard you guys say, actually not just to that question, but to the whole thing here, is that actually belonging in a particular community, understanding your particular place, whether that's understanding that you have to go to their care centre because that's where it will make sense for them, understanding what it means to go to a new community 10 miles away and make sense in that community, what it means to live in Preston, is utterly critical to people understanding the gospel today. And that might mean you're there forever. It might mean that, like BMS has evolved from when they first went there, actually you can be there for a while and, and, and move on. But actually for us to be good innovators alongside pastors and shepherds and teachers, uh, all the other people that, that are there, actually we need to proclaim the gospel in a particular place in a way that's going to make sense there. Yeah. We have one minute left I will give you each 20 seconds if you want to say something. Anybody got anything that they're bursting to say? You really don't have to. <laughs> awesome. So, we, we have one person that has... Sorry, one last thing. Sorry, it was just a quick question Go. about how then do you attract and keep innovators? <laughs> That's so not a quick question. You can come back for next week's seminar. <laughs> Scott. I, I think what you do is you chain change how you train church leadership yes because what we're doing is we're training pastor teachers we're not training apostle leaders prophet leaders or evangelist leaders and I do think there's something about the, the point that, that Jim Purvis made yesterday um, where he was talking about the sense of crisis. There is, a, there is a deep need that we need to acknowledge. And I think we, need to, we do need to soak in that a little bit. It's not very comfortable. We also need to give thanks for all God's doing and celebrate all the good stuff. But we do need to acknowledge that there's a, there's a deep need and therefore to welcome innovators in yep. that context. All churches need them. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. That seems like a good place to finish. We need innovators. We must make space for them. We've got to take the risk with them. And I give thanks to my three brothers here who are all innovators, whether they would take that language themselves or not, I don't care. I'm giving it to them and model for us something I think that we could aspire to uh, as uh, those that would be parts of churches that have them. Thank you very much for your questions. Thank you, Grant. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Martin. This has been the Midcast at Baptist Assembly. <laughs> we are out. You've been listening to the Midcast, a presentation of the Mission Initiative Group of the Baptist Union of Scotland. 